Alrighty. Alright. We are gonna we're gonna get going. Gonna gather back together. Look how talkative you all are. This is wonderful. Look how talkative you are. This should mean a highly interactive sermon experience, right? So the second I ask if it's going to be a highly interactive sermon experience, we just get quiet. It is okay every now and then to say amen. It's like, hmm, you can do the spiritual cow. Hmm, that was good. If it really goes sideways, you can say, help them, Holy Spirit. Um, if I haven't met you, I'm Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at, uh, we're doing one sermon on what is one of the most precious chapters of scripture. We've done a series through this chapter before, and I think it was like six weeks long, so, so we've got to cover a ton of ground, but it's a really core text for us as a church as we look at a, this series of who we are. Luke 15, we'll, we'll really focus on verses 11 through the following of the chapter. Before we dive into God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you didn't have to speak to us, but you chose to. You could have left us in silence and in darkness and in wandering and wondering and confusion, but you haven't. And in your kind providence, you spoke and then had your words recorded in this book. You tell us the one to whom you will look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. You tell us that your word, it never returns void, but always accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. God, you spoke and you made everything. Your word is powerful and good and right and helpful. Oh, it can challenge us and confront us but its design is to build us up that we might worship you rightly and we might love those around us. As we come to your text, would you create an awareness of our soul's hunger to hear your word and the feast that you've prepared? Might you grant us a humility to sit deep beneath this text that is so loaded with your lavish grace but even when your word is so good, we need the work of the Spirit to allow our hearts to hear it and feel it and respond to it. Above all things, what we ask for today is what we ask for every Sunday as we gather, that we would leave this place more impressed and more confident in the work of Jesus. Might you make him loud in our songs, in our prayers, in the sermon, in communion, in our conversations during and after and throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just ask you one question to set up our, our text. What kind of church do you want when you sin? Just let that question kind of land on you for a minute. What kind of church do you want when you, when you struggle to grow? When you're trying to look more like Christ, when, 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 you, when you mess up, when you flame out, when you burn out, when you wander off, maybe when you just get distracted, what kind of church do you want 
when you sin? Bring that question into this text. If, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll read from Luke 15, verses 11 through, through 24, um, and we'll finish the rest of the chapter, but we'll just read this, this portion. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property among them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fat calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Feel free to grab a seat. Well, that's a good start. What a beautiful story. It's a story, if you look at Luke 15, the whole chapter is a story about lostness. There's a, a lost coin, there's lost sheep, and here we see this lost son. But more than a story about lostness, it's really a story about God. It's not so much about the, the prodigal son, but, but as Tim Keller says in his book on this chapter, the prodigal God, the extravagant God. The extravagant, lavish, overwhelming love of God for those who don't love him. It's about grace for those that don't honor him. And it all gets set up with this really heartbreaking scene from verses 11 and following. The, the, the picture here is a father with, with two sons, and the younger son comes to his father and says, Father, I want what's coming to me when you die. I want my inheritance now. I want your stuff. I don't want you. I don't want your rules. I don't want a relationship. I just want the things that are, that are coming to me. So I, I would like to live in this moment while you're alive as if you're dead. Just give me what's coming to me so that I can live how I want. So the young son, he takes it. The father gives it to him. And he, he begins to wander off. 
in verses 14 and following, and, and like I said, we've, we've done multi-week series to this, so we're going to move kind of quickly to get to, to the focus today, but in verses 14 and following, we just see this really sad outcome. However it is that we wander away from the Father, it ends up bad. He joins himself. He went out and he hired him, himself out as this famine came in, and this son who was in a, in a wealthy home who had access to everything he ever needed began to be in need. And then he hires himself out, and it literally means he joined himself too. He said, I no longer have a family. I need a family. Will anyone take me in? And then the context of this is a, is a, is a good Jewish boy out feeding the pigs would have been an, an absolute disgrace. It would be the lowest of the low for him. And then he's looking at what the pigs eat, and he longs for them. Anyone here who's ever been in the ditch knows what this is like. You don't know how to get back. You don't know what to do. You just look for help wherever you can find it. This situation really is very sad, but there's a solution, and that's where I want us to, to focus on. And maybe I'll ask the opening question a bit and modify it. What do you need when you sin? What do you need when you end up far off? What do you need when you end up burnt out? What do you need when you end up in the place where your resources run out. What do you need? Well, I would suggest to you what we all need is what is needed in this text. What we need is a father to go back to. I love this, this waking up that happens to, to this young son in verse 17, but when he came to himself. He's farmed out. He's trying to find someone to take him in. He's, he's looking at what the pigs eat, and he says, oh, if anyone would just give me that, and then he, then he, then he, then he wises up. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And he begins to rehearse this speech. But one of the things, look at this. He woke up to this. He has a father. Three times in those two verses, I have a father. I have a father. I have a father. I'm not forsaken. I'm not alone. It's not as desperate as it looks because there's one that I can go back to. And his hunger, his humiliation, he remembers he has a father, and that is grace upon grace. I was listening to a sermon by um, Alistair Begg about a year ago on this text, and it ended up making it into the Good Friday service we had this last year, and I was blown away by some of Begg's insights into just how gracious it is that we are even offered the reality of a father. Alistair Begg says it like this. He says, what if there had not been a father to whom he could return? Or what if the father to whom he could return was a father who would simply treat his boy as his sins deserve? I don't think I'd ever thought of that before. Because I've just gotten so used to God being such a good, gracious father. And when Begg said that, I said, what if there was no father that he could go back to? I mean, look at verse 16. Just, just, let's say the story ends here. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. That's it. Big comment on that says this. He says, what a tragedy it would be that if that were the end of the story, that he lived helpless and hopeless and humiliated, and then he just died. What if the consequences of sin were irrevocable? What if sin was sin forever? What if there was no solution to sin? 
what if there's no heavenly father to whom the prodigal boy, the prodigal girl may return? What possible comfort could there be for this boy unless he has a waiting, watching, seeking, loving father? Is there any comfort in the story of sinners if the sinner is unable to come home? If he finds no reception, if he is unsealed, unrestored, and unforgiven? What if verse 17 never happens? What, what if there wasn't the father of verse 18 to go back to? What if you just became aware of your condition and your need and there was no fix? The fact that there's a father to go back to changes the brokenness of the situation. My brother and I were, um, it was back in high school. My brother was 16, just got his license. I'm the younger brother. He's driving around. We load the car with, with friends. Always a bad idea. Um, my dad had just bought the first new vehicle that I think he'd ever bought in his life. He hadn't made his first payment yet. I'm sure you can imagine where this story is going. We're out with some buddies. We're kind of caravanning and doing stupid high school uh, boy things. And one of my friends did something to a car that was passing. We all freaked out. Everyone hits the gas, and we start racing through these neighborhoods. And the, the friend that was in the front of this caravan, he turns his car like does a U-turn right in the middle of the street. My brother T-bones him right into the front yard of someone's house. And you're sitting in the bushes, and, and they had two cars tearing up someone's lawn, and we can't get the cars out in the ditch. And so I sheepishly go up to the person who owned the house, knocked, can I use your phone? Didn't have cell phones, and I remember that feeling of dialing my dad's number. My dad's response changed everything about that moment. Not, not, not the wrecked cars, not the consequences that came from it, but, but his response was this. His first things out of his mouth were this. Is everyone okay? It changed everything. We have a father that we can come home to. And that's what happens in this text. I mean, look at the type of father, and you can look at the, the verbs of, 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 of this text. I mean, this is just a stunning picture. I will rise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but I still way a long way off. Listen to these verbs. In verse 20, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. He saw, and he felt, and he ran, and he embraced, and he kissed. That's the father that we get to return back to. You know, how, how did he see him? Right, the son had left. We don't know how long he was gone. How is it that when the son decided to turn around and come home, you know, the father just happened to be out on the edge of his property that day, and it was just a coincidence that he saw his, his son's silhouette in, in the background? No, his father saw him because his father was looking for him. He's longing as any parent that's ever had a kid wander off. You just long for the day that they would come back. They, they might be away from your presence, but they are never away from your heart. So the father, he sees him. And then compassion, it wells up inside of him. It's a really, really good insight from Jared Wilson's new book, Love Me Anyway. And he says, imagine this, this scene which for, for many parents probably is not hard to imagine, and maybe many kids thinking about things they've said to their parents is not hard to imagine, but imagine the scene where, where a child, a young child with his mother gets so frustrated. This little child looks at the mom and says, I hate you right now. 
What's the mom do with that? You know, or should do. Does the mom look at the little child and say, well, I hate you too sometimes. Some of us maybe have said that, but I don't think any of us would say that's what we wish we'd said or wished we'd done. No, she's hurt, she's heartbroken and fighting back, tears. She looks at this child and says, well, you may hate me, but I love you. And nothing will change that. Jared Wilson goes on and he talks about the hurt is real, but it won't change the love. The son rebelling against the father, the hurt is real, but it won't change the love. He goes on and says, if anything, the love actually might become more lavish, more furiously defiant to the rage of the child. You hurt and you ache, but you also hurt and ache for your child that is so full of anger, so you love furiously. The father, he runs in compassion, just wells up inside of him, or he sees and he has compassion, then he runs. And this isn't just God bridging the distance to get to us. I mean, at the, the context of, of this time, a, a wealthy landowner running would have been so culturally inappropriate to a son that had rebelled in an honor and shame culture, and the father was saying, no, my son is back. He's telling everyone that will see it. With, with no concern for his own reputation, he just goes after the son. Why? So he could do what verse 20 says to embrace him. There's four words in in the Greek for that one word embraced. It means to fall upon the neck. Let's get this picture of father seeing his son, his heart springing forth, tears in his eyes, running as fast as he can with, with just lungs burning. Just grabs him. And kisses him. Pause and consider the condition of the son at this moment. He hasn't showered. He's been feeding pigs. He's impoverished. Consider the condition of the relationship. He told his father, I wish you were dead. And the father just swallows him. Some of us think we're unforgivable. Some of us think that our past makes us unredeemable. Some of us think that our present choices make us undesirable to God. Texts like this interrupt that sort of thinking. So Father wells up with compassion and runs and embraces. Uh, thinking a lot about what this would, would look like, and there's a story that, that I often go back to that Greg's son wrote in a blog post. Greg was an elder in our church, and moved to Burundi with his family as an anesthesiologist to help set up a medical clinic and a training hospital, and now is in, in Kenya. And he, and he wrote this story about uh, um, being in the, the tuberculosis isolation ward. It was a very sick patient. And he was doing the rounds with a number of the medical students, and they get to this, this man who was really struggling to breathe. And one of the, they needed to do a procedure on him, an echocardiogram, to kind of see what was going on. Um, but the problem is, to do it, he had to lay down flat, and he couldn't lay down flat because if this guy laid down flat, then he would suffocate. He couldn't breathe. 
And so he just had to sit up, and, and, and Greg said, he goes, you know, if we're, if we're in the States, I could do this because we have beds that, that, that get positioned in different ways, but he goes, none of the beds in Burundi did that. They were all just flat. There was no articulation in them. So he says, like, if I could get in just at 45 degrees, then I could, then I could do this. And then a medical student comes up with this solution. And I'll, I'll read Greg's words. He says this, he took off his white coat, he climbed into bed and seated himself behind the patient. Then put his arms around the man's waist and gently leaned him back against his chest so that I could do the procedure. It was hard for me to let myself cry as I watched him do this. The patient was sweating. He had, not like, he had likely not had shower for weeks. He was highly infectious with tuberculosis and this student made himself into a human pillow. Every time I, I see this text, and I think of the Father embracing and hugging. Every time I think of the glorious gospel of the grace of God, I think of Christ as this divine, this divine hug that grabs us in our filth and our, 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 our rebellion and our dishonoring and brings us near that we might be saved. That's what it is. That's the story of God's grace that he looks at us who didn't ask for him and sent his son for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, that he brought us in dirty and broken and confused and, and foolish. Not after we got clean. Not after we got well. But while we were as broken as broken can be. That's the offer that God gives to everyone here, without exception. If you will turn and you will come to the Father, this is the embrace that you can get. I love how the Father interrupts the speech of the Son. He says, I'm not even going to let you finish. I'm going to wrap you in a new robe. I'm going to put a ring on your hand and sandals on your feet, and we're going to slaughter the calf that you might be able to be brought into the party. That's the offer of the gospel to all of us. And the, the work that you do is this. You come. You come. You just come. Now, I, I would love to, I would love to just pause here, stop here, sing and respond. Um, but in this series of, of who we are, I want to point out something really important about a purpose of this parable. And we see it in the context of the parable back in verses one through three. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. See, the parable of the prodigal son and the story of God's pursuit of the broken was in the context of the religious people, would say the church people, who are grumbling at the grace of God. As tax collectors and sinners are coming near to Jesus, the, the religious elite are frustrated about it. And so he tells them this parable. And then we actually see this in verses 25 and following. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came in and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called out to one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So far, so good. There's a party. There's music. The brother is, is wondering what's going on. And he's told your brother is back. But look at his response but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, 
But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you know, so I didn't say my brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son. You know, it's interesting that word son in, in this, typically throughout this passage where it uses son, it uses the word for, for son, but here it actually uses a different word that means dear child. The father goes out to the older brother, so angry about his grace towards his, his, towards his young son. He says, child, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father pursues, he entreats, he absorbs, he invites. Now, we don't know if the elder brother ever went in. That, but that's the point of the parable, actually. It's not what did the elder brother do, but really inviting us to what would we do. I would suggest to you that's one of the reasons this parable ends the way it does. Are we going to be a people that grumble at grace? Are we going to be a people that would go in and celebrate? And here's where I'm going with this. The Pharisees and the scribes knew the doctrines of God better than anyone. They could quote the passages. They, they, they would say, the Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and compassion. They could quote the verses, but they were denying those verses by the way they lived. And they were creating an environment, a religious environment that had the tone of, of self-righteous performance. And into that, Christ inserts this story about the lavish, extravagant love of God. One of my buddies, Ray Orland, he says it like this. I've added these later so we don't have slides for him, but he says this. He says, the tone of a church can unsay what the doctrine of the church says. Have you ever experienced that? Now, the beautiful thing that the flip is true, the tone of a church can reinforce the doctrines that are said, so it can work both ways. But the tone of a church can unsay what the doctrine of the church says, or, or, or to quote him again, a church with the truth of the gospel in its theology can produce the opposite of the gospel in his practice. It happened probably six, seven years ago. Over and over, when we first planted this church like 13 years ago, the, the, kind of the first half of our church's life was a lot of like non-Christian or, or not really church Christians, people that hadn't grown up in religious environments. It wasn't that anybody hadn't, but for the most part, it was a number of people that were new to the faith and they didn't have all the religious baggage that can so often come out of growing up in a Christian home or going up in Christian environments. And it was really interesting and, and wonderful, and it was just incredible to see a lot of new faith and new life, and there's tons of mess and all sorts of stuff, but, but God's grace was so, so real and palpable, and everyone's like, I'm a mess. It was just a bunch of younger brothers coming to the faith. And then it was interesting because all of a sudden, God started bringing some people on Sundays, and I would be preaching, and I would look out, and I would see you see these, these grown, strong men just weeping. And this it happened over and over again, and, and they would be here for a few months, and, and at some point I was able to build enough of a relationship to just ask, like, what's going on? If you don't mind me asking, what's going on? It seems like something's stirring you quite a bit. And they would just, with tears in their eyes, say, I just haven't felt grace in so long. 
And as they began to unpack their stories, they talked about growing up in the church and growing up in environments that proclaimed the gospel. They had the doctrines of grace, but God's grace felt so distant for them. It was places where, where you, you, you better not get found out that you sin. You better not have struggles. You better not be broken. You, be, you, you better always be courageous and always able to run and always able to perform. And it just highlighted so much of the truth of a text like this that we can have all the right doctrine. but we can deny it by how we behave. And so to put this into who we are, um, the last few weeks we've been talking about what we call the big three as a church. I think we have a diagram of this that we can put up on the screen. Do we have the triangle diagram, Isaac? Great. So our vision, everyone, everywhere experiencing the gospel, we do that by making disciples that make disciples, that plant churches, that plant churches, that make disciples, that make disciples, like we're all called into this multiplying disciple-making thing. There's no bench warmers in our church. Everyone's on the field. Everyone has a part to play. And we do that in three primary ways, corporate worship, what we're doing now, biblical community, finding your people, doing life with your people, and then intentional training, which Pete spent all last week talking about. But there's something really important that we have to add to this if, if we're going to be true to a text like this and, and avoid the, the ditches that can so often happen where the church can feel so unlike the very songs we sang. We'll add, let's do the next slide. It's all done in the house of grace. So if you take the triangle, shrink it down, pretend like that's the gospel of God and his grace wrapping everything we do. Everything happens within that. Following God's commands happens within this house of grace. Pursuing our growth happens within this house of grace. Living out biblical community happens within this house of grace. We get welcomed into the Father's home where we get to have the celebration of the party. The elder brothers get invited back into this house of grace. The, the, the young sons that rebel get invited into this house of grace. Everything happens within this house of grace. I'll give you a, a, a way of working this out. This last week, my wife, Katie, she texted me a line from what is probably my favorite parenting book. And I've read a bunch of them. It's probably my favorite one, Parenting with Words of Grace. It said this, a home that focuses on what people are doing well has a refreshingly different atmosphere from a home that reinforces that nothing anyone does is ever worthwhile or good enough. I mean, there's so many gems in this book. And, and, and a home that, that focuses on what people are doing right, we're doing well, is refreshingly different. Let me reread it. Let me insert it this way. A church that focuses on what people are doing well has a refreshingly different atmosphere than a church that reinforces that nothing anyone does or is ever worthwhile or good enough. It's strange to me in the religion of Christianity, which is a religion of grace, that it seems like it's constant performance. Now, the grace of God is not a, opposed to effort, for sure. But Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and take my yoke and you're going to learn from me. And my dream for this place, because I believe it's God's dream for us and all of his churches, is that we would actually feel like the very gospel that we proclaim. Our target is that we would have gospel doctrine and a gospel culture, that we would have the, the, the story of Luke 15 shape our understanding of not just how we come to the Father, but how we interact with each other, that we would reinforce this message with how we live and behave. To quote Ray Ortland again, he says, the gospel culture, if we're going to define it, I might say something like this. It's the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, the vibe, 
feel, tone, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed, the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. Just saying everything we're about gets influenced by the grace of a father who would welcome broken people back home. So how do we get this shared experience of grace? How can we feel like a home defined and sweetened by the gospel? How can we cultivate a church with a, where the culture, the feel, the vibe, where it matches the doctrine? Um, I'll give you a simple answer, but it's really hard to do. And by God's, it'll only happen by God's grace. It's this. So how do we get this? God's grace to us and God's grace through us. That's how we get this. God's grace to us and God's grace through us. God's grace to welcome us like the Father does in this story. And then God's grace to actually make us more and more like the Father of this story. It's incredible insight by Henry Nouwen in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I don't think I'd ever seen or heard this before um, from, from this story. Every time I'd ever heard it preached or written about or, or taught, it, it was a beautiful invitation to the lostness in our lives, whether the lostness of running from God as rebels or the lostness of self-righteous, stiff-arming God, whatever. It was always an invitation. But Henry Nouwen actually ends his book with this incredible insider invitation that actually the point of the parable isn't just that God welcomes us in, it's that we can grow up and be like the Father. He says it like this. I think we have a slide for this one. Though I am both the younger son and the elder son, I am not to remain them, but to become the father. No father or mother ever became father or mother without having been son or daughter. But every son and daughter has to consciously choose to step beyond their childhood and become father and mother for others. Where it goes on and says this, perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is this, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. In some ways we could say that's the point of the parable. He's looking at the Pharisees who have all the doctrine. He says, be compassionate. That your father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive me my sins and offer me new life and happiness, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing to me perfectly no, completely no. But in part, yes, that's the hope that we have for our lives. It's not that we're just forgiven, but that we forgive others. Not that God just bears with us, but that we bear with others. Not that we just are the recipients of mercy, but we can be the conduits of God's mercy into one another's life. And as we do that, the feel, the tone, the vibe, the experience begins to feel like this home of grace that the sons got welcomed into. I believe that call is really clear. It's hard, though. There's, there's a choice. It's like, do I want this? Again, Henry Nouwen says, like, he says it like this. He says, do I want to be like the Father? Do I, want to not just, do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives? Oh, this is tough, isn't it? Oh, it's tough. It's costly. It's good. It's right. It's beautiful. But it's hard. But also the one who forgives. Not just the one who is being welcomed home but also the one who welcomes home. Not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. Let me reference John Owen and then I'll tweak it a little bit. John Owen says it like this, we are never nearer to Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. 
The son got that. You know, you think through your own story of how to the great extent God has gone to see us and run to us and embrace us and fall upon our necks. It's just stunning. But let me take that and modify it. Maybe, maybe we could say it like this. We are never more like Christ than when we find ourselves loving others with his unspeakable love. A text like this is trying to get us to, like, forgiving people, forgive people, and pursued people, pursue people, and loved people, love people. And when we do that, we create an environment that feels like the very grace of God. You know, I don't, don't miss the order of what we're saying here, because if you miss the order, we might end up creating law where we actually have grace that is forgiven people, forgive people. So what we need to become, the kind of people that can love like the Father, is to be loved by the Father. And it never goes away. As you are invited to be like the Father, you never cease to be sons and daughters as we try to work this out and, and, and have this kind of community that palpably feels like the grace of God. It's, it's beautiful but hard. Guess what? You're still sons and daughters who have the lavish love of the Father. As you become like the Father, you stay sons and daughters. That never changes. The grace offered to the prodigal, the grace that's offered to the elder son is grace that's constantly offered to you as you grow up in this, as husbands, as, as wives, as moms, as friends, as coworkers, learning to try to love like the Father loves you. Guess what? You're already deeply loved, and you're not going to be loved more if you love like the Father. I know I'm saying that a lot, and it's probably getting confusing, but it just never goes away. Let me give you a couple of handles as we wrap this up. Let me give you a few handles of how to try to make this practical. You know, this call to be like the fathers, you've been loved like the father, and this choice to step into. Let me give you a couple of handles. Um, uh, handle one is, is ask yourself a key question. I have nine different questions that I ask myself um, on every sermon. When I, when I, after I study it and write it and kind of rewrite stuff or, or write outlines, there's nine questions I ask when I'm editing. Um, things like, is it biblical? So that's a good question to ask. Is it, is it biblical? Um, uh, is Jesus the hero? Um, questions like that. But let me give you one of the questions I asked that, that helped me try to cultivate a, a, a culture of grace. And it's, it's this question. Will this sermon help cultivate a gospel culture? So I go through the sermon, I ask that question. I go, am I giving too much law? Am I being too light on Jesus? Is this too much about what we do and not enough about what he did? So I'm just asking, how would this cultivate an environment, an atmosphere that, that's not just saying, here's all the things we do wrong, but here's what God has done in us that's so right, and, and that sort of, sort of approach. So will this sermon help cultivate a gospel culture? You might ask yourself something like that. Is the way I am parenting helping to cultivate a gospel culture in my home? Is the way I'm responding to my spouse when they fill in the blank? Cultivating a, a house of grace. Is the way I respond to my roommate when they don't do their dishes for the umpteenth time? Cultivating an environment of grace. You know, you can just ask this question over and over and over again. When someone in my DG shares a struggle or confesses sin or someone in my church or someone in my gospel community, when they, when they share a struggle, what is, is my reaction to them? Emphasizing the gospel of grace or denying it? You know, what's more powerful? The 10,000 times you tell your kids that God is a good father or when they blow it 
and you get down on your knees and you hug them. Now, the reality is we don't have to pit those against each other, but I will promise you, it doesn't matter how many times you say it if you don't get down on your knees and you hug them. So ask yourself that question. How is the way I'm responding cultivating a house of grace? You and I are living sermons to one another. Give you a second handle. House rules. Um, One of the reasons we as a church, if you've been around for any amount of time, we have these things called house rules, like we're super legalistic about grace. It's kind of the way I tongue-in-cheek say it. But we have these house rules to try to to help us take this idea of a gospel culture and and make it tangible. Are there some things that we can, can embrace that help me enter into cultivating an environment that feels like this story because it's not always natural and it's definitely not always easy. You know, things like this. So here's some of our house rules. If, if you know this one, maybe you could help me with it. It's a big one for us. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. Of all the places in the world where it should be okay to say, I'm broken, I'm struggling, I'm confused, I'm messed up, it should be the church. Because that's the only rule for getting involved is you said, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm needy. So much so Christ Jesus had to come and die for me and to live in my place. It's okay to not be okay or things like this. One degree of change is still change and worth, anyone know the next word? And worth celebrating. Oh my goodness, I want a thousand degrees of change today. I want to, I want to look so much lower like Christ, but, but, but what we're doing with that is trying to say we don't want to create these high-pressure environments of immediate and, and instant and incredible change. We long for it, but it just doesn't often happen that way. And so we remind ourselves that. I remember one family told me after we, we had talked about this house rule with their daughter, she was like 13, always have these huge fights over cleaning the room. You know, didn't clean the room, didn't clean the room, didn't clean the room. And then one day she cleaned half the room. And they were like, well, one degree of change is still change, and we're celebrating. There's something to celebrate. Start with what's right, not wrong. Everyone's a work in progress. How about this one? Confession takes courage. Don't cringe. What if when the son came back in the story, the father just recoiled? I mean, that's why he was rehearsing the apology, because, and that's why we rehearse the apologies, because we're so nervous before we go back to God that how's he going to respond, and, and as we open our mouths to our spouse or our dear friends, and what, what's going to be their reaction to us? It takes, that's, a, that's a courageous moment when someone opens their lives up to us. The church should be the primary place where we get to say, here's what's really going on. I experienced how hard it is to, um, to, to do this on Wednesday night, uh, I made Brenner for my family, so breakfast for dinner, one of our favorite things to do. So I make Brenner, I, I, I made eggs and bacon, and then you know, had all the bacon grease. You're gonna think it's so unhealthy, which it is. And then took refried beans and put them in the bacon grease and cilantro and chopped up bacon and cheese. And, and, and then I had an echocardiogram. Um, <laughs> And so I made this beautiful, you know, we had tortillas and we're sitting at the table. The table's like, we always try to do like, this is what needs to be our sacred space. That There's no, you know, discipline here. There's just conversation, which we mess up all the time, particularly me. But we're sitting there, we're having this great dinner. And then, because I just feeling like a generous dad, I was like, I'm going to make the dinner and I'm going to do all the dishes. And so I made the dinner, I'm doing the dishes, I'm cleaning the pans. And then I look in the sink and what I saw disgusted me. And in, 
entire piece of bacon that somebody had left on their plate. They didn't eat it. What would you do in that moment? This is a shock. You're not tracking with me here. I made bacon and they just discarded it into the sink. This is a, this is a cardinal offense in the Barrett household. Now, that's goofy, but the reality is most of us aren't trafficking in goofy. We're trafficking in very real. A couple years ago, a guy was discipling. A dear friend called me up. And you can tell by the tone of his voice, he really needs to share something. He just finally says, hey, Rob, I'm really sorry. I know you asked me about this. I've been lying to you. Here's what I did. That is one of the most sacred moments God could ever place you into. One of the most precious places the Lord might ever appoint you to is when someone opens up their life, says, this is what's really going on. And the way we respond goes a long way in either teaching or denying a text like this. Here's here's what I said. In this moment filled with shame and sorrow, I just said, I'm so incredibly proud of you. It took a massive amount of courage to tell me. And let's work on this thing together. Over the years, It's kind of what I try to say every time. Now, the closer to home it gets, the harder it is to do it. But what kind of church do you want when you sin? When you struggle? Man, not one that just says it doesn't matter. That's not what I said. Not one that says just stay stuck in it. That's not what I did. But the one that points to the inexhaustible grace of God in Christ Jesus. So let me remind you of the Father's embrace. And now in this house of grace, let's work on this together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's as profound and simple as this. Our love for you and others is always a response to your great love for us. We love you because you first loved us by giving yourself for us on the cross. Because of your death, we live. Because your death was a sin-bearing death, all our sins are forgiven. We now live in a perpetual state of full forgiveness. The gift covering of your righteousness and the Father's unwavering affection. The unloving, dark, selfish things we have thought and still think, the harmful, death-giving, uncaring words we spoke and still speak, the choices we make and the things we do, which reveal the imperfection of our obedience. It's all forgiven. It's not what we or you want, but it's all forgiven. We are and should be and want to be astonished, grateful, and humble. Intensify our love for you and others over and over again. 
Show us how deeply we are loved by you, Jesus, and how lavishly we are loved by the Father. May the Spirit press the truths of the gospel so deeply into our souls that we would never doubt that we have a Father we can always return home to. And from that home of grace, help us love others the way in which we are loved. In Jesus' name, amen. As the band comes forward, we're going to prepare ourselves to, to respond as we do every single week as a church. We, we, we really believe this is the kind of the, the peak moment of our, our time together as a gathered people is the receiving of communion. So go to this table with a little, a little container of, of juice representing the blood of Christ and a little wafer representing the body of Christ. Here would be my encouragement to you. Um, Forgiven people forgive people, pursued people pursue people, love people love people, but as you go to communion, I want you to focus on the first half of each of those pairs. You're forgiven, you're pursued, and you're loved. You only can give what you've received. And so let this be a time where you, you sit, we're gonna, the band will play instrumental for a few minutes, we'll sing a few songs, so you have time, this doesn't have to be hurried, but just let the extravagant, lavish love of God just saturate your imagination and your souls. Put yourself into this story. If you've run, you might be far from God, but you're never far from his heart. He has a wonderful readiness to forgive. He wants to invite you to come back home. In this story, there's a fattened calf slaughtered for the party. At this table, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. And out of the fountain of his grace, he wants to restore you, welcome you, remind you, whatever it was this week. If you're here and you were not a Christian, you've heard of what God has done in Christ and he's offering to you. He's saying, come, turn from your sin and turn from your rebellion and say, I, I need a father and I need a savior. And go to this table and feast upon the very real love of God revealed most gloriously in his son, Jesus Christ. Go to the table as you feel ready.